0: I'm going to nervously look at Thomas to check when I'm actually on but I I am, that's good news the hapless visiting speaker usually forgets to switch something on it's all right (laughs) (laughs) but not tonight, not tonight well thank you very much for welcoming me here to Holy Trinity this evening it's great to be here and as uh, Alan mentioned I was here with Becca some weeks or months ago introducing Friends International tonight I won't be doing that so, if you wish to hear more about international students it'll need to be off pulpit uh, and afterwards, glad to talk about that. But tonight we're talking about uh, evangelism, and I'm hoping that will be the last time you heard me hear me say that word this evening. In fact, if you hear me say evangelism beyond this point, you could wave something or even throw something at me. I'll be talking about uh, sharing Jesus, introducing Jesus, those kinds of things, because I think that particular word, the E word. Uh, has a lot of negativity, a lot of guilt associated with it for people, and of course is a jargon word that only serious, lengthy, service Christians know about. So for the rest of us, let's do some Jesus-sharing this evening. And it won't be quite the standard expository sermon. I know you have a lot of excellent preaching here. Having insulted Alan's uh, microphone ability, I should now praise his preaching. Uh, so tonight will be more of a seminar. I'll do a bit of talking for about ten minutes... And then we'll do some group work where you guys get to do some chatting and thinking about people in your lives. And then we'll round off with a little bit more from me afterwards. So prepare yourselves for a slightly different kind of evening. I'm going to assume tonight that we're all potentially interested in sharing Jesus, but are struggling or finding it challenging. If tonight you're here struggling with doubt and aren't sure that Jesus is the answer all the way, then please, I do hope you'll hear some things that encourage you but perhaps pursue those questions with the leaders of the church and those who are here to help and pray through those sorts of issues. Because tonight we're assuming we're uh, already trying, and it's more about the how than the why or the what. Okay, most of the time in life, people know the question and seek to find the answer. Their struggle, the challenge is to find out the answer. Take, for example, the Higgs boson, which will be coming up on the screen now. Uh, There it is in all its glory. I'm sure you'll immediately recognise it. Uh, The Higgs boson is a tiny subatomic particle uh, which was proposed, its existence was proposed by Peter Higgs, then not a professor, back in the 1960s. He suggested it should exist. The rest of the scientific community basically disagreed with him, thought he was an idiot. And it took about 50 years until this year, the Large Hadron Collider in Switzerland, sometimes called CERN, they finally announced there that they had discovered or proved the existence of the Higgs boson. So they spent 50 years and about £6 billion on a very large particle accelerator, all to answer the question, was Peter Higgs right? And the answer they discovered after all that time was probably, maybe, they think so. You and I probably have more pressing and immediate questions on a day-to-day basis in our lives. I don't suppose most of us are debating the Higgs boson a great deal. We're probably asking questions like, can I balance the family budget this month? Or more pressingly, who should I marry? Or perhaps less pressingly, what curry should I have this evening? A choice I face fairly often, and so on. Generally, we know the question, and finding out the answer is the thing we spend our time and energy on. But this evening, we have a different challenge. This evening, we know the answer already, and it's up to us to find out the question. The answer, of course, is Jesus. He is the end answer, the satisfactory answer to every big question we may have about life, existence, the afterlife, and so on. But more difficult is finding out what question it is that our non-Christian friends are asking to which the answer is Jesus. What question they're asking to some extent determines how we give the answer Jesus to them in ways that answer their questions. So tonight we're on the search for a question, the question our friends are asking us. So let's turn to 1 Corinthians 9 and we'll see what Paul has to say about this difficult subject. So, in verses 19 to 23, which we've had read, we find Paul engaging with three different groups of people the Jews in verse 20, those like he used to be before he was converted on the road to Damascus, who obeyed the Old Testament law uh, to, to strive for righteousness with God, then the Gentiles in verse 21 who would have a variety of religious beliefs, of a very wide variety, I should imagine, at his time, but certainly didn't obey the Jewish law and didn't consider righteousness with God something they earned that way. And then a third category of people who we don't know a lot about, who Paul calls the weak in verse 22. So he has these three groups of people that he has been speaking Jesus to and is now relaying this information to his readers. Let's just start by observing that Paul was passionately committed to this activity of sharing Jesus and assumed it. He's not describing whether we should or shouldn't at all. He's simply saying how we should. He already thinks we are doing this. He's doing it and we're following his example. So how do we do it, he answers in this passage. Paul goes out of his way with extraordinary effort to win the ear of these folk and when he has, to speak the gospel to them in ways they can understand It's worth saying, too, that we are speaking these sorts of things, if we're trying to at all, into the world outside these doors. Uh, It's probably not a world that particularly wants to hear our message. We're not generally going to find people coming and asking us to tell them about Jesus. It's up to us to find ways to speak Jesus into their lives by walking with them and living with them. Take, for example, the 2009 Atheist Bus Campaign, as it became known, uh, during which a large slogan was advertised on London buses initially, and it said this, there's probably no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy your life. Without going too deeply into the atheist mind, we can say for sure that that represents the view of quite a lot of people in the UK today. Somehow God is a distraction, Uh, somebody who's out to spoil our fun, and if we can only just stop worrying about him, life can get really good. So that's one view you may well experience when you go out through those doors and try and share Jesus with folk rather than about you. Back in our passage, Paul is busy engaging with the people he's trying to win for Christ. These three groups of people he describes in some detail. He is working out what they think about life and speaking Jesus intelligently into it, into that life. He actually adapts himself and again at personal cost, he becomes weak to the weak, to the ones under the law, he becomes under the law. He's really prepared... Push pretty hard his own freedoms, become a slave even, in order to win these folks. This is strong language. I don't know how often you or I talk about becoming a slave to our non-Christian friends, that we might win some of them. But that's the sort of language Paul uses as he considers those he is trying to reach for Christ. I doubt uh, many of your friends fall into his Jewish under-the-law category. I should think nearly all of your or my friends fall into the the Gentile category, the the non-law category. obeyers. So we're going to have to think of our own categories with greater detail if they're going to be of much use to us as we seek to go out through the doors and share Jesus. Probably today, we would talk about these three groups of people as as worldviews. These are three different kinds of worldview. And there are plenty of those going on in our society today. Worldviews are nothing very complex, and I hope that bit of jargon isn't too off-putting. You could just call it the way people view the world, if you like, which sounds a little bit less jargony. It means the same thing. How do people view the world? Well, how they do is incredibly important in how they hear the Gospel of Jesus, because everything they see and experience, everything we see and experience day to day, is coloured, filtered by our worldview. It's the way we make sense of an apparently nonsensical world full of complexities and contradictions. Our worldview is our basis from which we go out and do things and see things and understand things. So if it's faulty, or if it's non-Bible aligned, then it's going to make a challenge for those trying to hear about Jesus from you. This is something we're going to consider as we go through tonight, how worldviews affect the people outside these doors that we're trying to reach. So worldviews present barriers to hearing about Jesus, but they also present opportunities. Let's briefly look at just a few worldviews. There's so many, it would take me all evening to talk about them and I'm by no means an expert. But just for the sake of illustrating, the people you know in your place of work, in your place of study, in the sports clubs or hobby clubs that you are a member of, will probably fall into one of a few larger worldview groups. And knowing which one they're in, which we're going to think about in a few minutes, ...may well help you as you try and speak Jesus to them. I would say that it will. First of all, there's the agnostics. Those are the undecided people who really don't know quite what they believe... ...but they're quite willing to say they don't know... ...so they're probably agnostic, undecided. There's the atheist who we've heard about already. The British Humanist Society sponsored the bus campaign I mentioned earlier... Uh, They aimed to raise £5,000 and put some bus slogans on London buses. They raised over £100,000 in a few days, and the campaign went global. They had German buses with that same slogan. So we find Britain as a beating heart of humanism rather than of Christianity, unfortunately. So the atheistic worldview is strong in the UK, although much less strong in other parts of the world. Quite a few of your friends and colleagues may well be atheists, even if they aren't quite sure that's what they are. They don't think God exists and they think the world is material, primarily. There will be other religious groups, of which Muslims are probably the single largest in the UK. They, of course, believe the teachings of Muhammad, uh, and read their holy book. They are a growing group in the UK, so if you aren't currently meeting with Muslims in your community, you may well be soon. There's some training on that uh, next week, by the way, if you'd like to reach Muslims more effectively. There will be Christian and Christian-derived worldviews around you, uh, we are a sort of post-Christian country in some ways so some of the people you know may have a sort of slightly Christian worldview without realising that it's come from the Bible and there are plenty more as well this is all happening for us in this postmodern, cynical consumer culture that we exist in so those are the basic worldviews those are the big pictures but of course people actually exist inside those have all their own unique little quirks and preferences and passions which we're also going to think about in a moment But that is the world we're trying to speak Jesus into. And if we're going to do it like Paul does here to the Jews, the Gentiles and the weak, we're going to have to do what Paul does and work out how to speak Jesus ourselves, living Jesus to them in each of those different categories, wherever the people you know are. So let's pause for a moment and uh, say a creed which will remind us what it is we do believe and then we'll go on and look at what other people believe. Okay, the next bit is a group discussion. So we're going to have a little think about those that we know in our lives. I'm hoping that at the start of the service just now, you prayed for two of those people. People who don't yet know Jesus, but who you feel uh, God has put in your life to give them the opportunity to hear about him from you. These may be people that you've not yet even had a conversation with along these lines. But as you pray and think tonight, you're aware that they're the ones for you. I'm hoping you can think of uh, two or three people. And I'm hoping that you can... Can you put the questions up on the screen for me? Um, go one step further. So you're going to sit in small groups, let's say groups of between three and four people. If it's much more than that, you'll not get round everybody in the time you have. So cluster up, get friendly with those you may not have met or have spoken to recently. Perhaps as a way of an opener, you could say to them what it will be that you're doing tomorrow. And that will tell them a little about your life. Just a one-liner, say hello who you are what you're doing tomorrow, and then get on with these two questions here. So I'm hoping that saying the names of those three folk won't take long, and that you can get on to what worldview your three friends, colleagues, family members have, and therefore how it affects speaking Jesus to them. And I'm not worried about where they come from or who they are particularly, just that they're the people that God has put on your heart for now. You're going to have about five minutes to do that. I shall wander around as you do, so feel free to grab me and ask questions if you like, and the idea will be that you take away these three names and these three people and prayerfully go about reaching them uh, in your life from this point forward, and that the the group discussion will prompt that thought. So turn around now, find between three and four people to share with, and get talking about three non-Christians you'd like to share Jesus with. okay folks could you draw your discussions to a close I take it from the muted muttering and general talking that people had some good things to discuss, I'm pleased to hear that before we go on, could I just have a few shout outs of world views that you encountered in your non-Christian friends just shout out yep Previous Catholic, now Atheist. Yeah? Muslim. Previous Catholic, now Agnostic. Pluralist. Pluralist. Muslim. Another Muslim. Other Muslim. Other Muslim. Practicing, Jew. Practicing Jew. Oh, we've got one. Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> <Cut>. Anyone else? <laughs> Humanist. Bahari, Baha'i. Okay, I don't even know what that is, but that sounds challenging. Okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, I'd love to hear what it is afterwards. Um, so, just in that brief time, we have come across quite a wide range of worldviews, most of which will not be sympathetic to the Christian view. And probably most of which won't come cheerfully through those doors to hear about Jesus. So the chances are we're going to have to go out there and speak Jesus in our lives by living our lives with those folk if we're going to reach them. So if you struggle tonight to think of three people or indeed any people perhaps that you're having the opportunity to share Jesus with at the moment then I would gently challenge and say you might need to spend a bit more time outside those doors and a bit less time inside them. Not too much less because we know that the church is an important part of God's command to us but if you haven't got anybody or you're struggling to think of people then it's time to get out through the doors and speak into that world that we've just had a little window into in those last few minutes it's a world without Jesus they don't know who he is, they don't know the joy of loving and following him, their sins aren't forgiven by him they need us to go out there and tell them about him that's what Jesus has asked us to do that is our challenge and we need to go and do it As we go on then in our thinking this evening, let's quickly look at a case study. It's traditional in seminars to have a case study. Uh, this being a sort of seminary, sermon seminar, uh, it's going to be from the Bible. And the case study will be Paul speaking to the Areopagus in Athens in Acts uh, 17. I'll read out just a couple of verses. You can turn to it if you want to, but we're going to pass on through this fairly quickly because our main passage is 1 Corinthians. So I'll read out verse 22 of Acts 17 and verse 23 as well. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. And the verses that follow, he does exactly that pretty uh, emphatically. Now, when he spoke those words to the the Areopagus, he would have been at the foot of the Parthenon, which is coming up on the screen now. That's roughly how it would have looked. We don't know exactly where he was, but he was around there because that's where the Areopagus met. So it was a huge, and at the time perhaps 400-year-old, testament to the might of mankind and their capacity to build and be impressive. I should imagine most visitors to the city would have been enormously impressed by this building. Not only that, but the Areopagus was a group of prominent thinkers, judges, and leading lights of the city, which itself was a major or the major seat of learning and knowledge at that time. So Paul pretty much marched into the most difficult possible place to proclaim uh, the God of sea and sky, and then did so. Was he intimidated? Well, it doesn't say whether he was or not, but it doesn't seem like it from how he spoke. Not only that but he did exactly what he describes in 1 Corinthians 9 in practice when he spoke to those Athenian philosophers. He looked into their worldview. You see, he says, I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship. He got to understand their culture, their perspective, their worldview, and he found a way into it for the gospel of Jesus. He spoke about the unknown God, their own altar. He mentioned their poetry. He does not validate their beliefs in other gods. He just uses their worldview as a way in for the truth of Jesus, which is a pretty good model for us. Although, obviously, Paul was an apostle. We have the Holy Spirit, and we're commanded to do the same thing. So in prayer, uh, and with God's power, we can. Paul sees wisely into this Athenian world, and he communicates the gospel accordingly, and that's what we have to do. So back in 1 Corinthians 9... Paul tells us the theory, and in Acts 17, he shows us the practice. But in both cases, there's something I haven't mentioned yet, and that is some things in brackets, some caveats. Now, of course, the original Greek doesn't have brackets. I don't know quite what it does have. But we know that, as Paul describes the ways in which he adapts himself to allow others to hear the gospel, there are limits to his adaptation. He will not go uh, to the nth degree. There's a point at which he stops So in brackets it says, though I am not free from God's law, but under Christ's law. And again, uh, though I myself am not under the law, in in verse 20. So what do these brackets mean? What do they mean for us? We're not sharing our gospel generally with Jews, although our friend there is. What does it mean when Paul gives these limitations to his flexibility? Well, I think it varies enormously what it means, what it really means is we don't lose our distinctiveness as we live in the world with the world, we don't become of the world. So we're going to think a little bit about this in groups shortly, but I'll give an example of a friend of mine at university who was a passionate evangelist, oh, I've said the word, oh. <laughs> strike one, okay we did quite well to get that far I think, I didn't quite say the real word, but anyway, she was a passionate sharer of Jesus in her student context and she was out with her student friends, non-Christian friends sharing Jesus on a daily and a nightly basis. She went to clubs and parties, and she was there advocating him in all possible contexts and ways. It sounded very Pauline. In fact, it was quite impressive. We were all quite impressed, except that she didn't have any caveats. There were no brackets. And gradually, her behaviour became almost indistinguishable from the behaviour of those she was witnessing to. And of course, at that point, her witness had very little credibility. So the brackets are important. Some of us need to go out the doors more and meet more non-Christians and share our lives with them more. Others of us tonight may be feeling a little like my friend from university. You may recognise in yourself this possibility that you're out a lot with non-Christians. Great. Keep doing that. That's exactly what we all need to be doing. But hear this warning from the passage tonight. Be careful. Live by Christ's law and for his glory as you share Jesus. We're going to have a group discussion now based around these verses in uh, 1 Corinthians 9. If you could put the second group discussion slide up, there it is, Paul uses this pattern three times in the verses. To those under the law, I become like one under the law, that I myself am not under the law. Now, by and large, you're not going to be preaching the gospel to Orthodox Jews. If you are, then you can put almost those exact words in. That'll do just fine. If you're not then you need to think in your groups again perhaps about just one of the people you previously thought about and decide what goes in those blank boxes for you with your specific non-christian friend this evening an example might be to the postmodern consumer I become like a postmodern consumer but i show that i don't love money and you could ponder how you might show you don't love money or you could say to my Muslim friend, I become like a Muslim by being devout and godly. But I show that my salvation is by grace alone. To your sports-mad friend, you might say, I become sports-mad with them. But I show that I don't worship sport. And again, think of some examples of how you could do that. And you yourselves will each have, I think, a different to put into those boxes because your friends all have different things that they believe and do. So, we're going to have five minutes now where you can do exactly that for one friend. If you have more time, carry on by all means, but I'm thinking one will be a minimum, maximum, you're going to fit in in the time available. Five minutes, same groups, this question now, and I want you to have this friend in mind to go straight out the doors at the end thinking these things. How do I be a postmodern consumer, a Muslim friend, and so on, effectively for Jesus? And what's in the brackets? What won't I do? How will I show that I'm distinctive and under Christ's law as I speak Jesus to them? Okay, guys, you've got five minutes. Okay, folks, I'm afraid it's time to draw those discussions to a close again. I heard all kinds of interesting things being puzzled out and discussed around the room, so great. That was really encouraging and very helpful. I hope you found it encouraging and helpful too. You may well have discovered that in those short five minutes, you didn't get anywhere near real, tangible answers that you can go and then discuss with your friends who don't yet know Jesus. But I'm hoping that it will be the start, at least, of some really serious thought. If you can think your way into other people's worldview and the things they're wrestling with, the things that don't make sense to them in their worldview, then Jesus can be the answer that makes sense in, in the right way for them. Perhaps, as you discussed, you began to see that there's a little bit more to worldview than just this big idea about what happens when you die or whether there's a God or not. There's also the issue of the human heart, the beating centre of our passion and desire. Each of us has things we really, really want. Probably some of them are things you wouldn't tell anybody else about, but you know what they are, and uh, you really want them. And you're probably going to spend a lot of your time and energy trying to get them. For some people, it's power. For many, it's money. For some, it's sex. And the good opinion of others is one that many of us would deeply, deeply like to have. In other words, people liking us and liking how we are and what we're about. So all of those things are deep heart desires for people. They're heart desires for Christians and those who don't yet know Jesus. The difference for Christians is we're busy trying to put Jesus at the top, in the top spot in our heart. We want to want Jesus more than anything else. Now, frequently we don't. Frequently he slips down to number two or three and we realise actually we want to please ourselves more than we want to please Jesus. Or we want one of those other things more than we want Jesus. But we realise, hopefully, that we've somehow created an idol in our hearts again and we're back trying to wrestle Jesus into number one spot and get him in there instead of the idol. The difference between us and a non-Christian in that respect is that they're not trying. They're very happy with their idols in most cases. But if it's not Jesus at number one spot, then it's something else. And that's true of us, true of the guys outside those doors as well. So, if Jesus isn't at number one spot, then something else is. And that's something we can, if we're meaningfully in relationship with these people and having real conversations with them about the real things of life, week by week as times and opportunities occur, we'll probably begin to discover what's in number one spot for those people. It'll be different in most cases. And again, if you put the blanks up and fill them in with what does their heart really want, your friends would each have different things in there, or at least derivatives of those things. So, we're beginning to get a bit nearer to that question I posed at the start. What is the question? What is the question to which Jesus is the answer? Well, it varies for each person. But what the question is in some ways is what is at the top of their heart that Jesus needs to take the place of, and therefore, how can you speak Jesus to them in ways that make sense of that idol and challenge it? Somewhere lurking implicitly at the back of any serious conversation about Jesus with a non Christian is this why should Jesus knock X, my idol, idol, off top spot in my heart? Why should Jesus have that spot instead of X? Therefore, what is X? And we have to find out what it is and then speak Jesus into its place. I'm not going to give you any top tips now because it really does depend what they really want. But the worldview is the big thing, the kind of the way they make sense of life. Inside that are their beating heart of passions and desires that we all have, that they have in replacement of Jesus. We have to find out what it is. We've got worldview, that's the big one. We've got the heart, that's the desires, the, the motive, the energy that they're putting into their lives. And with those two things, if we can understand what they're about, our friends, we will be in a much better place to show them why Jesus is the answer to those passions. Why that idol they've got in top spot isn't going to satisfy as life goes on. We know it won't. We just don't know yet what that idol is. So let's find out and then we can see more clearly how Jesus will satisfy where the idols won't. Think of the rich young man who approached Jesus in Matthew 19 He left Jesus feeling sad because although he'd spent his life doing all kinds of righteous things and obeying the law he knew to be from God, Jesus spotted straight away that at the podium position in his heart was his wealth. He was a wealthy young man and he loved his wealth more than he loved the thought of following Jesus. And he went away unwilling, actually, to put his wealth aside and put Jesus in number one spot. Our friends, many of them, are in that position and need us, like Jesus did, to see into their lives and to recognise what that idol is and then to speak, hopefully, lovingly and prayerfully into their lives with Jesus and show that he is a better number one than the idol they have. So as we conclude, we see in Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians and then his example in Acts 17, the Christians are called to live out our lives in relationship with others who don't yet know him and who we have to speak Jesus to in ways they can engage with in ways that give traction to Jesus in their lives and while doing this Christians are called to be distinctive we have to hold in balance those things in the brackets the things we won't do in order to help our friends know Jesus so we stay distinctive for Jesus and for his glory as we speak him into the idols of people's hearts so so Go out tonight and prayerfully set about finding out the questions that your friends' hearts are asking and then lovingly and challengingly speak Jesus into those lives, into those hearts as the answer to the question they're asking. Amen.